This is More Than Therapy Podcast More Than Therapy This is More Than Therapy More Than Therapy Podcast This is More Than Therapy More Than Therapy Podcast This is More Than Therapy Podcast Hello, and welcome to another episode of More Than Therapy. Today, I have a very special guest. I have him briefly introduce himself before we get into our episode of today. Mr. John, introduce yourself to us. You'll give us a blurb. Yeah, I'm John Giordano. I'm a recovery addict with 36 years of recovery. I'm also a traumatologist. I work with our wounded warriors, police officers, epidemic shootings. Uh, I'm also a researcher. I'm currently in now with 75 medical and scientific peer-reviewed journals. Um, I work with about 25 universities, and this is what I do. I, I'm a chaplain for the police department also. So I do a lot of things. I'm also a grandmaster in the martial arts. So pick, your, pick whatever one you want. <laughs> Indeed, indeed. A lot of people who are working addictions, who help people regarding their addictions because they walk the path, many people deem that they're better suited for it. Tell me about your recovery journey. Like, tell me about the dark days that brought you to light. Uh, well, wait, I got, I, I'm getting calls. This is crazy. Can you hear me? Yes, sir, I can hear you. I can hear you. Could you hear me? Oh, well, yeah, I can hear you now. Yeah, yeah well, you know, I, uh, well, I started, you know, I started doing drugs at 20. You know, I'm, uh, you know, national karate champion, black belt, Hall of fame, all that stuff. And, uh, um, you know, I, I got hooked up, to make a short version, I got hooked up into drugs. Uh, my students were doing drugs and I used to work them out and, until they threw up and uh, told them if they come to my classes high anymore, I'm going to keep doing this. And so, well, you never tried it, so how do you know what it's like? And well, that's what I wind up doing. And long, long story short, uh, I destroyed my life almost. I was homeless. Uh, and then when I got into recovery, I went back to school, uh, opened up a treatment center, and uh, I turned $300 into $45 million. If you would have told me that, that that would have happened years ago, I probably would have punched you in the face thinking, trying to make fun of me. Indeed, indeed. I know for myself, it was a precarious journey, you know what I'm saying? It's like cultural in some aspects that grew into heavier addiction and then uh, a significant trauma occurred. And I guess that was me opening my eyes to start again and start a new path. And I thought that by helping people, I could make amends for the pain that I caused or thought I caused, if that makes any sense. Right. Yeah, well, we don't only abuse drugs and alcohol. We abuse people, places, and things. You know? And uh, that's what we do. Been in recovery for a long time. What have you been doing for yourself to be able to stay firm in your recovery? 
while, you know, I, I do the basics and what they taught me from the beginning. I go to therapy. I still go to therapy every once in a while. You know, this is do a tune up, check where I'm at. You know, I have a sponsor. I, I, I'm in the 12 step program, of course. Um, and I do the, I do podcasts, you know, to talk about addiction. I wrote books. Um, I have my latest book is The Kid from the South Bronx Who Never Gave Up. It's, just, it's my life story. It's actually like doing the fourth step, uh, which was really difficult for me writing the book. And it's to help people to motivate them. You know, being as I only went to the ninth grade, my father was a heroin dealer. Um, I grew up without a dad from eight years old to 12. Um, I got molested when I was a kid. You know, I was in gangs. Uh, all kinds of different things, and uh, and here I am in recovery, and it saved my life. Indeed, indeed. <clears throat> now, what about yourself? You're recovering yourself? Yes, sir. Um, 2003 was on my last year of use. I mean, continuously in recovery. I do have um, a tendency to emotionally relapse around certain times of the years, which I'm continuously working on, if that makes any sense. Um, some are really hard for me because that's when my brother was killed, one of the significant chapters in my life, his death, you know what I'm saying? Because I felt it was my fault that you know he came to that end when he was 18 years old, taking full responsibility for that. Even though it's not really my responsibility as a, an adult, we do what we do. But I know it could have been a different scenario if I had just done a couple of things differently. So make amends by trying to do the good work that you and I continue to do in our recovery and by helping others in recovery and not by judging them, not by putting them down, but by uplifting them, motivating them and letting them know that yesterday doesn't count for today, that today is a new day and that the past does not signify what we are today. Well, you see, the past is where you get your lessons. See, to me, there's no failures. There are only lessons. And, and, and the bottom line is, is that, you know, even when I was using, well, <laughs> believe it or not, I, uh, I was always helping people anyway with my martial arts. And I also, uh, I threw a concert in 1981 in Liberty City in Overtown. And uh, most of my black belts are, are from the black community. And uh, I had James Brown, and we had 60,000 people showed up. And I invited President Reagan to come to the concert because uh, we were revitalizing Liberty City. It was right after the riots in 1980, 81. And uh, what happened was, because uh, what I did was, I, uh, we had a flea market, USA. And I was the marketing guy for that, and also I did the security. And what I, the theme of the whole uh, concert and everything was, is to help the community to come together and uh, to teach people how to do business and how to buy. And I called the SBA loan people, and they helped the people that wanted the red boots. And I went to all of the deacons and all of the pastors in the community, and um, it was really cool. And anyway, uh, the president sent me back a letter stating that uh, he couldn't come due to uh, scheduling, but he's going to send Carrie Meeks. And that's what he did. He sent Representative Carrie Meeks, who later became Senator Meeks. And uh, she checked around with everybody about me in the community, because I worked in the community for many, many years. 
and um, they decided to. Uh, she went to the Martin Luther King Foundation, and they presented me with the Martin Luther King Award in front of sixty thousand people, which was a whole trip for me. That I, I just couldn't believe this stuff was happening. So that's some of the things I did, you know, when I was really using. Amazing, kind of crazy. Amazing, indeed, indeed. I look forward to reading your autobiography. It sounds like quite the tale of recovery. It's interesting. Oh well, interesting. let me say something. You're going to get a kick out of some of this. See, my 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 family is like a mafia family, and uh, I had a wedding when I was 20, and uh, my uncle threw the wedding. And what wind up happening is is that the caterer insulted my uncle in front of the family. Well, we don't know for sure, but the caterer wind up being killed the next morning. And I had to leave town real quick with my bride because the police were coming to my grandmother's house, where my uncle lived. Oh man! So, <laughs> I, oh yeah, I got quite a life story. Uh, I used to do, I used to sell drugs, and I used to work for the smugglers, uh, doing collection work. Uh, I, the book is really, you know, to show people that no matter what kind of family you come from, man, no matter where you are, I'm an inner city kid. I'm a street kid. And you know, no matter if you you were in gangs, or no matter if you didn't have education because they quit in the ninth grade, that you could change your life, man. And and, and you really can, but you got to work at it. You know, knowledge is power, but it doesn't mean anything if you don't put it to use. And that's what I did the book for. And my other book is how to beat your addiction and live a quality life. So I just keep giving back because God helped me, and uh, and when I first started in in, in, the, in recovery, I didn't, you know, God. Man, I went to Catholic school. I, I had enough of God, and I said I didn't come here to join a new religion. But I kept going to the meetings, and they said, and I hated them. I said this is I, I wouldn't even get high with these people, you know, and uh, my life started to change, and I didn't even see it. Everybody else saw it. And then eventually I did. And for those of you out there listening to this, listen, man, I don't care where you came from. And if you think you got a bad family, I'll lend your mind for a while. So the bottom line is we all can do this. I don't care where you come from. And I wound up being homeless when uh, I started my recovery journey. I got divorced and I had no place to live. I only had a bicycle that somebody loaned me. And I had a job I used to record as it. When I had quarters, so you can do anything if you put your mind to it and have faith in the God of your understanding, and this is what I believe. You indicated that the twelve-step program has been very beneficial regarding your recovery. I myself found a lot of issues with it as I struggled with my own spirituality at times. I found a lot of focus that helped me was. I guess dealing with trauma, DBT, dialectical behavioral therapy, motivational interviewing was very beneficial in my recovery because I guess just the change, the skewed distortions I had regarding the way I was thinking, as well as unearthing some of the traumas that contributed to my maladaptive and addictive behaviors. I say that to say this, you formed your own treatment center because of some of the things that you saw in treatment centers. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, well, what I saw was, listen, treatment is 60 years behind the times, man. 
and I'll explain to you what that means. It's supposed to be a medical model. It's not. It's a psychological model. It was based on uh, 28 days, the Minnesota model, really based on alcoholism, not drugs, so much. And there is a difference. And the bottom line is, is we're not looking at co-contributing factors to addiction. Now, what does that all mean? Well, if you have if you have depression and anxiety, okay, and you're prone for addiction, all right, you're going to go gravitate towards a drug. Uh, you know, of a substance or a behavior that is addictive to medicate those feelings. Now, what what could cause that other than psychological? So we always think it's only psychological. It's not. Okay, and there's science behind this. I mean, I lecture all over the world. I lecture at neuroscience conferences, and I start talking about what I'm going to tell you, and they go, "Wow, we never thought about this." Well, you know, holistic approach means a comprehensive approach. Holism. So what does that all mean? If you have a low thyroid, you're going to have depression and anxiety and suicidal ideation. If you got leaky gut syndrome or H. pylori that starts in the microbiome in the gut, okay, you're going to have depression and anxiety. If you got low testosterone, you're going to have depression and anxiety. If you're hyperglycemic, you're going to have depression and anxiety. If you have a closed in- in- head injury, you're going to have behavioral problems and depression and anxiety. We're not looking at any of this. Now, most people don't realize that your gut or your microbiome or microbiota, whatever you know term you want to choose to use, is where serotonin and dopamine is manufactured. And what that is is a neurochemical that we produce naturally that makes us feel good. And that's what we actually, you know, look for when we do drugs: the raised dopamine, serotonin, to feel like up and. high and running around and you know all that stuff then you have the crash of course but so that's what I lecture about and then I show people how they can help themselves with that because if you don't take care of the, the physical problems it's very difficult to stay in recovery so recovery is a mosaic of meetings therapy nutrition Help, uh, exercise is paramount because ex- exercise depletes stress and raises dopamine. Stress depletes dopamine, so you have to take all these things into consideration. And a lot of people that get into recovery, they don't take care of their health, and they wind up dying of diabetes, high blood pressure, you know, uh, heart attacks. All kinds of things. Obesity starts to happen, especially with opiate addicts, because they become carbaholics. They love carbs and sugars, and especially in the African American community, um, prone to diabetes and uh, high blood pressure. So, there's a lot of stuff going on that needs to be addressed that's not being addressed in treatment centers today. And unfortunately, treatment centers don't run treatment centers. The insurance companies do, and that's a big problem. Uh, anything else you want me to say? <coughs> you had your own facility. How, how long did you have it? And you know, tell me about what you did differently. Oh, okay, what we did differently is a we did aromatherapy. Number one, most people say, "Oh, aromatherapy. What does that mean?" 
uh, believe it or not, different smells create different moods. We did uh, neurofeedback and biofeedback that helps retrain the brain. Okay, where there's deficiencies. In other words, they find out through QEEGs. That's a, a thing. They a little helmet they put on their head with different electrodes to see the different a different electrical outputs of the brain where it's deficient from a normal brain. And through exercise, through these different videos, they strengthen the brain. We do hyper. We did hyperbaric medicine. That's oxygen under pressure. I did that 20 years ago. And、uh, I worked with a doctor, Paul Harch, who is a pioneer in hyperbaric medicine. He's the one that went to the Senate with Dr. Williams, and they approved wound healing with hyperbaric medicine for diabetics. Later on, they found out that it also works for TBI cases. So we did hyperbaric because it also look drugs and alcohol damage the brain, you know. And if you ask anybody about post-acute withdrawal syndrome. And you say, well, what do you do about that? They always say time, baloney. That's because they don't know. What you do is you can do hyperbarics and oxygen under pressure actually helps to heal the brain. Also, amino acids are paramount. We did. We have about 15 papers in medical journals on、uh, certain compounds. I work with Dr. Blum, who's the geneticist that found the addiction gene, and there is an addiction gene. Okay, and.、Um, He wrote about I don't know maybe 800 papers in medical journals, scientific journals. Most doctors don't have one, so that's how you know he's known all over the world, and he has what is known as a CARS test. Gen- it's, it's a, that's the genetic addiction risk score to see if you're mild, moderate, severe propensity for addiction. They take a, a DNA test from you, and they do a swab. And they let you know, and they give you a whole pamphlet on, you know, what you need to do for it. Science is moving forward at a rapid speed. Unfortunately, treatment isn't, because insurance companies refuse to pay, and they're looking to get people out earlier and earlier, and then they're looking to put people on other opiates to fix the opiate problem, like the boxing, buprenorphine. Listen. I'm not a, a, a against anything. I'm for what works, but these are short-term interventions, not long-term interventions. Because buprenorphine or suboxone, okay,、uh, blunts dopamine, and you walk around like a zombie. And then when you try to get off of it, very difficult, just like methadone. So we keep looking for this magic bullet, and what it is is, is that we have to take care of people. Physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually, and if we don't cover all those things, the addiction creeps in that doorway. Indeed. And we did acupuncture, by the way.、Uh, we did colonics. Of course, we did group therapy, individual therapy, family therapy, EMDR. We had spirituality co-、uh, counseling, non-denominal.、Uh, we had family groups. We had family weekends. Nobody did. Everybody knows it was C and G Holistic Addiction Treatment Center.、Um, everybody in the industry knows us or knew us. I sold in 2012, and that's where I started it with $300. This little 750 square foot、uh, room that we had, and man, it it grew. 
And I had great partners. It was a team. It wasn't just me. I had a great team of people. And, uh, you know, in the beginning, we had bill collectors chasing us. And we still gave people uh, treatment if they didn't have any money. It was all about helping people, not about making money. And the money just came. So that was pretty wild also. And we all were in recovery, my partners. Indeed. Anything else you'd like to know? Yeah. <laughs> no, you good, man. <clears throat> There's a lot of focus on vicarious trauma as it pertains to people, you know, seeing things such as the Black Lives Movements and people being killed on video and on social media and things like that. You work with police officers who also are impacted by such things. Can you tell us about your work with them? Sure. Well, my son is a police officer in Sunrise. My son-in-law is a police officer in Hollywood. And I'm a chaplain for North Miami Police Department. I used to train, uh, I, I trained special forces, and I also trained police officers in, uh, you know, uh, hand-to-hand combat, uh, all those things. Uh, working with police, unfortunately, what happens with police officers, and I've seen it with my own family members, they have a severe personality change. What people don't realize is that when you're dealing with the worst of the worst every day, day in and day out, and people are looking to kill you, and you're running around, they're traumatized. They have their personality, man, changes. You know, you start to look at everybody like they're they're no good. And it takes time to come back from that. And, you know, you can't... uh, you know, a lot of police officers that are traumatized and the judge, can you imagine picking up dead bodies with guys, uh, their brains half out of their head? Um, you have a guy, you, you, you go and you stop a car to give him a ticket or to talk to him. The guy shoots at you. Um, you, you got another guy, you know, he's in there and I ain't doing nothing, I ain't doing nothing. Then all of a sudden pulls out a gun to go to kill you. And, you know, and that's what you deal with all day long. And people don't get that point. And everybody says this one's prejudice. I think the whole world is prejudiced if you want to know the truth. You know? I mean, it's just crazy how far all of us have gotten away from things. And there are bad police officers. But there are also a lot of good guys. You know? And, you know, it's just uh, the world has turned to crap, in plain English. And I hope we we get out of this and you know get into the light you know and people start looking at people for people not because they're black white green yellow who cares what color you are what kind of human being are you okay and how are you with me I mean that's what really matters you know all these judgments about people was ridiculous you know like I said I worked when I went into the black community in 1965 now, I want you to get this picture. One of my black belts was a special forces guy coming out of Vietnam. Uh, he was teaching in Liberty City and the Carver YMCA. He asked me to come down and teach the classes with him. So here I am, long-haired, mustache, all right, wearing my karate uniform, walking through this team center. Now, when I walked through, now there was not one white person in the whole place, okay, except me. And I walk through and they go, 
the guys who shoot pool, everybody stopped shooting pool. I went through the gym, everybody stopped working out. And I went into the back. Now, my students were gang leaders, okay, and then switched up and went to the military. And he was very well, my student, very well known in the community. But he wasn't there yet. So I get on the mat and I had this big weightlifter guy come over to me. His arms were as big as my leg. And he says, hey boy, hey white boy, you think we kicked my ass? I said, yeah. I said, if you like, get on the mat. So we got on the mat, he tried to sneak punch me. I round kicked him in the solar plexus, dropped him to the ground and he couldn't breathe. And just then my student walks in and he goes, oh, I see you met my teacher. He said, that's your teacher? And then he joined the class, and that's how that all these kids, you know, that were in the city, uh, joined my school. So I have about 200 black belts. And um, it was quite interesting. And to me, they're family. You know, I don't care who you are, what color you are. I want to know what kind of person you are. And that's just the way I, you know, it's the way I ride, you know? Indeed. But he's got a lot of attention on recovery now that the suburbs seem to be more influenced by the opiate addiction than when the um, ghetto was influenced by the crack addiction. Um, are you noticing this trend regarding how there's a lot of focus on recovery? There's also not a lot of options for inpatient treatment for those addicted to cocaine. What are your thoughts on this? Well, here's the story, okay, which a lot of people don't realize. You, I don't know if you know this, but opiate addicts, they're considering they don't need treatment because it's, it's not, it's not a, uh, considered a medical problem. <laughs> I mean, like that one, okay? So, see, alcohol, alcohol and benzos, okay, they consider uh, medically necessary because you can have a seizure and die and nobody wants to get sued. It all comes down to money, man. I don't care which way you want to cut it. And cocaine, all right? Now, I was a cocaine addict. I mean, I did every drug known to man, but cocaine is what took me down. And, you know, I went to treatment, and, you know, they, they had to say that I did alcohol, too, because if, I didn't, if they didn't say that, uh, you can't get any days in treatment because it's not medically necessary. The insurance companies are trying to screw everybody. And the, listen, the treatment model's broken. Look, if you go to treatment, you got a shot at least to get clean. But the problem is, is that the treatment model's broken. It's 28 days. Hey, man, you've been with drugs for 20 years. You go to a detox center. They call it detox. It's not detox. What it is is stabilization. Because when you put drugs in somebody to stabilize people that are on drugs, they're on drugs. And everything has a half-life. So it takes time for all the drugs to leave the brain and the system. Now you go to treatment if you're lucky. And now when you're in treatment, all right, you're there for two weeks, four weeks, and then you leave. You don't even know where you're at. When I was in treatment, I didn't even know where, I didn't even know what the heck they were saying. Treatment needs to be 60 to 90 days, depending on the severity of the illness. But insurance companies won't do that. To me, it's ridiculous because an addict goes to, to a detox center, comes out, goes to treatment, leaves, relapses, and go back to another detox center, and then repeat the process two or three times. Let's do it right the first time. 
Let's give people an opportunity to get clean and sober with time. You can't, you can't do this stuff right away. It, the brain needs to heal. And then they don't talk about nutrition. They don't talk about any of this stuff. And what most people don't know, if you go to treatment, all right, and they put you on medications. Now, why do they put you on medications? Well, most of the time what happens is when the drugs leave, the mental health issues come up to the surface that most people try to medicate and don't even realize it sometimes. Okay, but that's normal. You have to give the brain a chance to, you know, to regroup. But if you don't put them on medications, then they can't be in treatment because they're not sick enough. So there's a lot of stuff that we got to correct. I've been trying to get on Biden's uh, team for, uh, you know, for the, the opiate team, the opioid task force, because they don't know what's going on. Try to get detox in, the, in our city. Yeah, there's a waiting list. I used to work at the homeless shelter for drug addicts and alcoholics who had HIV and who had a co-contributing co um, mental health issue. And, I mean, it, it's crazy. There, aren't, there isn't any treatment. And if there is, it's watered down because they can't get the money to do it the right way. And a lot of them don't even know what the right way is. How's that? <laughs> Indeed. If I you had, if you years. had, if you had the funding, if you had all the support in the world, I don't know how much money it would take. I don't know what kind of building it would take. I don't know what kind of paradise or island it would be. But if you had everything you needed in place, what would, what would you design, build, construct, put in place, what, regarding recovery? What exactly what? What exactly what I had? Okay. We kept people. We kept people about sixty days sometimes, even if they didn't have the money. All the insurance ran out. You know, and we did research. What we did is, and anybody you ask in the community, they know us. Okay, what we did, all right, we had outcome studies, but we didn't do the outcome studies. We had a third party. So I had two scientists do it, Dr. Blum and Dr. Schoenthaler from Stanislaus University who's the one that did nutrients with adolescents, 500 adolescents, to show that proper diet and nutrients changed their behaviors. And it was a, a, a big paper, and he was an understudy of Paulus Linus, uh, Linus uh, the guy who, uh, with vitamin C, I don't know if you know that. Uh, he was a scientist that made vitamin C popular. And we did that, the way we did it, is the way we did our outcome studies, we sent our clients to a three-quarter way house. Okay, for people who don't know, three-quarter way houses is where it's managed, where people are uh, come from other treatment centers that uh, they got out of treatment and uh, they're monitored, hopefully, and uh, they have to get a job, they have to go to meetings, and they have, of course, they can't use drugs and alcohol. So we had a, a contract with a couple of three-quarter way houses and they had to drop urines on them once a week. And the people that were in town came to our aftercare, okay, where we eyeballed them and dropped the urine on them also, okay? And we got reports back from the three-quarter way house how uh, their behaviors were and how they seemed. And what we were getting in the reports that they're different than other clients. And that's because of the things that we were doing with them. 
And those that were out of town, we put them on Skype. And we had aftercare for as long as we were around and they were around. And then we got together with MIT because Dr. Blum had friends at MIT. And they had a program that could tell by your voice, the inflections in your voice, your tonality, if you were lying or not. So that's what happens when they call up people and say, hey, how you doing? You know? Uh, so we had that also. We had, and I know this sounds crazy, a 70% recovery rate. And that's no bullshit. Played in the sh- okay, we tracked it. We did the family members. We did the call to the client. And we had the three-quarter way house and, and us in aftercare. So we knew exactly what was going on with them. That's how we just call them and say, hey, how you doing? A guy's snorting coke going, oh, yeah, man, I'm doing good. <laughs> you know, that doesn't work very well. So that's what I do. I would rebuild my program. But then I would get other scientists to come in and uh, do some more research. Indeed, indeed. When you sold your company, did um, the person or the company or the agency that bought it, did they keep it going? Well, let me tell you the story. It's a sad story. We thought the guy was cool. He wasn't. Okay. Uh, what happened was he had a, a center that he cop- tried to copy me, but it was like a poor copy. Okay. Because you have to care about people. It's not just about looking good. You got to be good. And uh, he bought us in 2012. And he closed it in three years later. He fired half my staff. He paid everybody less money. Uh, he destroyed the whole thing. Because it was about money, not about help. Evidence by what he did, not what I think. Okay. And I what? mean, you spend $45 million and you close the place in three years? <laughs> I've seen it happen a number of times myself. Like, um, a bigger company will buy, like, a small and pop, uh, what would be considered a small a mom and pop mental health agency, and they'll do the work, and then they'll see that it wasn't as viable as they thought it was, and then they'll, they'll shut the whole down, and then that'll be, like, basically a mental health desert. No mental health services in that area anymore. Right. It's sad, man. You know, listen, a lot of people get in this business, I call them green eyes, okay? They think they're going to make all this kind of money and all this stuff. You can if you do it right, okay? And you got to give back to the community, man. That's what it's really about, you know? And these people that are like real estate moguls that they say, oh, look at this, all the money you can make with this. They run it like a corporation, okay? And they don't understand this is a people business. This is not a, a business business. You know, we used to get, my partner was a genius with the internet. We used to get a thousand calls a day. Now, we only had 62 beds inpatient. So we used to sell the calls to other treatment centers. I mean, we did things that nobody was doing. And you know, when people say, oh yeah, you say you're probably fabricating. No, I ain't fabricating, just go around and ask. You know, real simple stuff. 
you know, like I said, we used to do massage. So people say, oh, you're trying to make it a Gucci drug. No, drugs are on a cellular level. So lymphatic, lymphatic massage gets those cells out on a cellular level. So people don't get that. We put them on that. We look at, we also check for uh, heavy metals. Most people don't realize heavy metals, toxicity causes attention deficit disorder, possibly bipolar disorder, because neurotransmitters don't connect properly. I mean, we had 85, and we did, you know, we did blood tests, hair tests, urine tests. We know we had 85% of the people that came through treatment had heavy metals. And it's fact what that does to you. So, you know, we went into science. We didn't went into anecdotal stuff because nobody listens to that. Even though a lot of the stuff may be true. Well, everything we did, we had we, we were backed by science. Indeed. And, you know, that's what we did, man. In your golden years of recovery, what are you doing for yourself? What are you, how are you living? What are you doing in these days? Well, these days, the same thing I've always done, helping other humans, helping God's kids. I still do, uh, you know, individual therapy with people. I, uh, I write books. I do my podcast. I do my lectures. Uh, you know, ain't about money. It's about giving back man and you know I look at life this way the more you give the more you get and you don't have to give to think about getting but that's the way it works karma is a it's a real cool process tell us about your podcast and give us any links to some of the things that you're doing or want people to know more about it's called beat your addictions and uh, what it's about is about enabling, about how families sometimes are sicker than the client, uh, what is addiction, uh, what you can do as an addict, uh, all kinds of, and then we have different people on talking about nutrition and how different things can help. Um, all these different things, how going to uh, self-help groups, how, nor how the neurology in the brain okay raises dopamine most people don't realize that when you're in a place where you don't feel like you're going to be judged and you're with other people that are similar to you it's kind of like a high if you look at it from the proper perspective you know and all i know is it's just like i had a hard time with with god when i first started that's why it's funny i'm a chaplain um i, I don't want to hear about god i don't want to join a new religion uh you know and one of the old times came up to me and said, hey, John, how about G-O-D? I said, look, man, I know how to spell. She said, no, 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 no. He said, G-O-D, good orderly direction. I said, you got it. Oh, that's my God. That's what I'm going to do. So that was my higher power for about a year and a half, two years. Then eventually I found a God of my understanding as soon as my brain cleared up. And all my anger and all my shame and all my guilt started to somewhat subside. Um, then things change but you see when I tell people I don't care if you got 36 years 36 minutes you got to keep doing what you're supposed to do to keep those 36 years or 36 minutes you can't go in yesterday's successes man you got to stay up you know it's like working out you know like I'm 74 
uh, I'm going to compete again when I'm 75. I fight. I'm a fighter. And I competed when I was 72. And now I'm going to go back out when I'm 75. Uh, you know, everything I tell people to do, I do. I, I'm not from the school of do as I say, not as I do, baloney. And um, the bottom line is that you have to do all the things to keep yourself going. It's just like working out. You can't work out for a month, get the shape and say, oh, I'm done. Uh, life doesn't work that way. So it's the same thing with recovery. If you stop lying, cheating, stealing, manipulating, uh, stop going to meetings, stop talking to people, holding stuff inside that is, you know, sharing it with people that can help you, you're going to relapse. Period. Hanging out with friends that you know is not the same uh, people that you need to be around. Hang out in the barbershop long enough to get a haircut, you know, that wrap. That's about it. Indeed, indeed. Well, Mr. John, you educated us with a lot, told us a lot about your history, gave us a clear foundation of recovery and which, what you did and what needs to be done regarding how people implement recovery. I thank you for that. Any final words? Yeah. Just don't give up. Never give up. No matter how bad things seem, things always change. And if you if you can find it in your heart to get a God of your understanding, he'll never leave you alone, man. He'll always be with you. Even though in the worst of times, I've had him. And I'm sure you had him also. And, you know, get my book. Uh, the Kid from the South Bronx Who Never Gave Up. It's on Amazon. It's on Kindle. And give it a shot. Give it up to you. Make sure you get that book. And I'll put it, it'll be listed in the um, description of this particular podcast episode. And thank you, Mr. John, for giving us what you've given us today. I look forward to hearing more from you. I'll be subscribing to your podcast as it sounds like something that I can gain from, as well as many of the people that I work with, as well as many of the people that I counsel. Thank you, and thank you again. I appreciate you. May you be well, and may you continue to be great. You too, man. Keep doing God's work, brother, because you're doing what you're supposed to do to help those out there that are sick and suffering. Indeed. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Okay, Steve.